the National Archives podcast series, When Sport Meets the Law, presented by Nigel Taylor. Yes, the National Archives, among its records of government departments and law courts, uh, has a wide selection of material relating to sport, ranging from the medieval origins to uh, modern times. For example, we have a, a scrapbook dated 1896 to 1902 for the Greenor Golf Club, County Louth, Ireland, among our, our railway company records, as it's owned by a railway company. There are many uh, Edwardian uh, photographs uh, of sportsmen and teams and sporting scenes among our stationers' company copyright material. For example, uh, we have a photo of Chelsea's last match in the uh, Southern League in May 1907. We have files on the 1980 Moscow Olympics and the UK's attitude to these games. We also have records uh, of the National Playing Fields Association. In the year of the London Olympics, it does seem appropriate subject, uh, especially with the pending decision of the Court of Arbitration for Sports uh, in Switzerland regarding the British Olympic Association challenged the World Anti-Doping Agency ruling that its bylaw, which prevents British sportsmen banned for taking prohibited drugs for competing in future Olympics, is not compliant with their code. I, would, uh, I will, in my talk, uh, concentrate on the, uh, the main popular sports uh, and cover, cover instances where uh, sport has interacted with both the uh, criminal and civil law uh, and reflects the increasing move from amateurism to professionalism and greater organisational uh, administrative structure. What is considered uh, the first reference uh, to football occurs in the reign of Edward II during the mayoralty of Nicholas uh, Farden of London. There is a partial uh, tr transcription of the uh, relevant proclamation in a 1929 article in the American Historical Review, Review by F.P. Magan Jr. entitled uh, Football in Medieval England and Middle English Literature. I quote uh, from his uh, partial uh, transcript, uh, proclamation issued for the preservation of the peace. By virtue of this notice, uh, Nicholas de Farden, then mayor, has by trustworthy men of the several wards caused inquiry to be made concerning malefactors and night prowlers and has caused a proclamation to set forth below as follows to be proclaimed throughout the city, whereas our Lord the King is going towards the parts of Scotland in, in his war against his enemies, and has specially com commandeered us strictly to keep the peace. And whereas there is a great uproar in the city through certain tumult arising from the striking of great footballs in the field of the public, for which many evils perchance may arise, which may God forbid we command do, we command do forbid, on the king's behalf, upon pain of imprisonment, that such, ga such games shall not be practised henceforth in the city. Uh, I believe the, this uh, ritual, this document, uh, is held in the London Metropolitan Archives. This is indicative of the, the rowdy and violent origins of football, which often involved large groups of people. The flavour of these origins is maintained in the, uh, the Royal Sh uh, Shrove Tide football match, which still takes place annually in the Derbyshire town of Ashbourne which ha has its origin dating back to the 12th century. There are a few good examples of sport featuring in the uh, 17th century coroner's inquest records, uh, among the records of the Sussex Assizes Court and one of the central courts of Westminster, the Court of King's Bench. Roy Hunnisett uh, 
who used to work at the uh, National Archives when it was known as the Public Record Office, identified a number of such cases in his book, uh, Sussex Coroner's Inquests, 1603 to 1688, published by the Public Record Office. One in 1624 involved a, a cricketing accident as one of the earliest references uh, to this sport. Jasper Vinell, later of uh, West Hoadley, described as a husbandman, which was a small to middling farmer. Aged 34 thereabouts, and Edward Tye, also of West Hoadley, and a, a husbandman, were playing a customary game called cricket at Horsted Green in Horsted Keynes. Tye, bearing no malice, not intending to cause injury to Vinell or anyone else there, in his turn hit a ball high in the air, and for his great advantage in the game, intended to hit it again as it was dropping to the ground. Vinell, for his great advantage, intended to catch the ball as it fell, suddenly came running quickly behind Ty's back, whereby Ty, not seeing him by misadventure and against his will, struck Vinell on the forehead with a, with a small staff called a cricket bat, worth half a pence, which he held in his right hand, giving him a bruise of which he languished at West Hoadley until 10th of September and then, and then died. Thus Vanell was killed not by a felony, but solely through his rashness and, and negligence and misadventure. This inquest is also interesting as it shows uh, that in Sussex at least, a batsman could pursue the ball after it had, he had hit it and, and could hit it again before it touched the ground. It's, it's possible that the dangers in this tactic, uh, as there were similar deaths, led to the change in the rules. Coming now, coming to more up-to-date, uh, uh, it's a subject that certainly has resonance today is um, you know, betting scandals and match-fixing. Such an occurrence happened on uh, Good Friday on 2nd of April uh, 1915. Manchester United uh, beat uh, Liverpool two goals to nil in, a football league first, in the Football League First Division. The match was fixed for United to win. Uh, Manchester United was struggling to avoid a relegation while Liverpool were comfortably positioned in mid-table. There was also the backdrop of the First World War, which, which may have provided an extra motivation for fixing the match, as players knew that it was highly likely that the professional football would be suspended, ending or seriously curtailing, curtailing careers. After the match, the uh, lack of commitment of the uh, Liverpool players were noted by the referee and some of the observers. Handbills started to appear, alleging that large amounts of money had been staked on the correct resolve at odds of seven to one. The Football Association launched an inquiry and identified seven players in fixing the match. Sandy Turnbull, Arthur Wally, uh, Enoch West of United and Jack Shelton, Tom Miller, Bob Purcell, Tom, Thomas Fairfell of Liverpool. Jackie Sheldon, a former United player, was the ringleader. Two players refused to take part. Fred Pangham of Liverpool and George Anderson of Manchester United Pangham testified against the perpetrators at the subsequent Football Association hearing. The seven players all received life bans. However, the clubs were not fined and there was no league points deduction as only the players were deemed guilty. Enoch West tried to fight back by suing the Football Association for libel in the King's Bench Division of the High Court in 1918 and 1919. At the National Archives, we hold the pleadings uh, in the case on the reference J54 forward slash 1703. Enoch uh, West lost in the court, court of Appeal hearing in February uh, 1914. He also claimed that a resolution, uh, he also claimed a resolution and a declaration that, um, 
resolution of the football stations and suspending him was, was null and void. Also sought an injunction uh, to restrain the association from pro prohibiting him from taking part in football or football management or preventing him from entering football grounds or, in or interfering with the rights and privileges as a member of the association. The court heard that Manchester United paid £450 to obtain his transfer on the 30th of April 1913 and agreed to engage him for the 13 to 14 season at £4 and 10 shillings a week and from 14 to 16, uh, £5 a week. West played inside left in the fateful match. West was told by his captain to play safe, which meant hucking the ball and taking no risks. The association had two inquiries. Afterwards, reports on the inquiries were sent to the Daily Dispatch and the Athletic News publications. West was also suing the newspaper proprietors, Holton and Co, for libel. The case was finally decided after going, it said to the Court of Appeal, with West losing. He remained banned from playing until 1945 as part of, but as a part of a general amnesty. Uh, and then there was a general amnesty, when he, uh, but he was by then was 59 uh, years of age. Although it was suggested if the men join up for the uh, Although it's suggested if the men join up for the first world board, the punishment would be lifted. Uh, West didn't uh, decide not to take that option, but all the other men joined up, and and in the first world board did play in the uh, football league again, apart from Sandy Turnbull, who was killed in 1917. Coming on to uh, a slightly more recent uh, betting scandal, in 1964, uh, and this is probably slightly better known. In 1964, there was another bet, uh, say better known <laughs> betting scandal. A Scottish player, Jimmy Gould, over several years had interfered with the results of football league matches. Born in Aberdeen, Gould played for several, for a number of clubs, including Charlton Athletic, Everton, Plymouth, Argyle, Swindon Town, and Mansfield Town before a broken leg entered his career. In 1964, he approached uh, Sheffield Wednesday player David Lane, a former colleague at Swindon Town, in December. 1962 to identify a game that could be targeted for placing a bet on the result. Lane identified a game against Ipswich Town that they felt they were likely to lose. Watson, uh, Wednesday did have, uh, didn't, didn't have a good record against Ipswich. Two other Sheffield Wednesday players were involved, Peter Swan and Tony Kay, both of whom have played for England. Uh, Swan was, uh, went to the 1962 World Cup Finals in Chile, uh, but did not play because of illness. He was considered to have a good chance to make the squad for the 1966 World Cup in, in England. All three bet on Sheffield Wednesday to lose, giving uh, 15, 50 pounds each for, uh, for Lane to give to Gill to place the bet. Wednesday did lose the match 2-0. Peter Swan always maintained that he had tried, and Peter Kay was even identified as the man of the match uh, in the, the Sunday People newspaper. It was the Sunday People newspaper that found out that a number of lower division matches had been fixed. After being approached by Gould, over £7,000 uh, was given over for him to, to talk uh, about his role as a, a ringleader. The newspaper knew, knew that the inclusion of big names like uh, Kay and Swan in the story would attract more interest from, re from its readership. A sting was set up by fitting a tape recorder and a microphone in a car, uh, which was in a car park, to record a conversation between Gould and John Fountain, his main uh, co-conspirator. The case was, uh, went to trial at Nottingham Assizes in January 1965. Gould and nine others were charged. All te ten were found guilty of conspiracy to defraud bookmakers by fixing matches. Gould had pleaded guilty and received four years imprisonment. Fountain and Lane switched their plea to guilty 
uh, and then they, with the former getting uh, 15 months and the latter uh, four months. Kay and Swan both receive uh, four months imprisonment. The summing up, Justice uh, Lawton said, your crime has been great, it's duty, it was a duty to pass a sentence on you to make it clear to all evil-minded people in all branches of sport that this type of activity is a crime and a serious crime. Sentencing Swan and Kay, judge said, you present, present me with the most unpleasant part of my duty. He added, the greater the distinct, your distinction in football, the greater your fall must be. After release from prison, Swan and Kay received harsh uh, life uh, football bans, but a campaign on their behalf meant that it was lift, lifted in 1972, although by, uh, by then their playing days, at least at the highest level, was almost over. The National Archives holds the court uh, records, including the depositions, which is a statement of the witnesses, and court exhibits. Another aspect of football that has concerned, uh, in this case, the civil courts, um, especially the, is concerned the, the, uh, the issue of the freedom of contract and the issue of the maximum wage. And this has culminated in the uh, 1996 European Court of uh, Justice decision in the Belgian uh, the case, Belgian Football Association versus Bosman, which prevents clubs from demanding a transfer fee for out-of-contract players moved to another club and prevents the restrictions on the number of foreign players who can play for a particular club. The transfer system has been previously argued in the English High Court uh, in the case uh, Radford versus Campbell in, in 1890. Nottingham Forest sought an injunction to prevent Campbell from playing for Blackburn Rovers. This was only two years after the start of the, the Football League and before the in introduction of a registration system for players. Campbell signed a contract to play for Forest in the 1890-91 season, but then he signed another contract with Rovers, then the biggest club in England. The application of the Chantry Division was refused, and then it went to the Court of Appeal, and again the injunction was refused. The judge felt that the, the court should not get involved, as, it put, as he put it, it ought the solemn machinery of the court in granting an injunction to be evoked in order to satisfy their pride in winning their matches. He added that if the defendant broke his agreement, an action would lie against him, but it was not necessary to, to decide now. The next significant case was a King of BV versus Aston Villa in 1907, involving the Football League registration scheme, which, which occurred against the backdrop of the move towards a maximum wage for players and the setting up of a, a professional players' trade union. Herbert Kingaby was sold to Clapton Orient, a Southern League team, to mighty Aston Villa for £300 and was paid the maximum wage of £4 a week. Two months later, Villa decided they did not want him and tried to sell him back to Orient for half the original transfer fee. But Orient could not afford the fee and no club came forward. Kingaby could, could not join another league club as he was retained player on Villa's retained players list. As his one-year contract was at an end, he decided to join Fulham, and then a, then a, a non-league football league club in the Southern League. In 1910, he joined uh, Leighton Orient, who were a second division of, of the football league club. But, but shortly after the transfer deal was struck uh, between the two leagues, or between the two teams, under the terms of which Paul Kingaby had re-registered as an Aston, Aston Villa player and could not play for another cl club until, until Villa agreed to transfer him. Kingaby decided to go to the High Court to seek damages for breach of contract and injunction. The judge decided the club had no case to answer for and there was no grounds for challenging the transfer fee or the transfer system itself. 
as being a breach of the employment contract. The National Archives uh, holds uh, court records for these uh, two cases. Things sort of dragged on, and then you have sort of the next significant case uh, uh, is that Eastern versus uh, Newcastle United, which took place in the Chantry Division of the uh, a case took place in the Chantry Division of the High Court in 1963. Sadly, the court records uh, do not survive. Uh, George Eastern, who people of my age and older may remember as part of the 1972 Stoke City League Cup winning side, um, was trying excessively to be released from his contract with Newcastle United. Frustrated, Eastern, Eastern decided to give up the game and, and took a job outside football. He decided, uh, he decided, with the support of the union, to take a test case, even though Newcastle backed down and granted the transfer to Arsenal. The system was little changed since the Kingaby case. This, uh, this time, the court found in favour of the player by ruling, ruling that the retain and transfer system was a restraint of trade. The National Archives hold, uh, have a, a number of interesting uh, Ministry of Labour files relating to these issues. Uh, sadly, I could not find a file on the 1961 abolition of the maximum wage for footballers, which reduced the first £100 per week fo footballer, Johnny Haynes. Uh, moving on, another interesting case... Uh, Connected with sport, uh, this time involving the origins of the uh, motor racing, uh, origins of motor racing, the Brooklyn's uh, motor racing track. Uh, this took place in the uh, Chancery Division in the High Court, Chancery Division of the High Court in 1908. Court of records of which do survive at the National Archives. There were two actions brought against Hugh F uh, Fortescue Locke King, uh, the entrepreneur who founded and financed the Brooklyn's motor racing track at the Fox Hills Estate in Weybridge in Surrey the world's first purpose-built motor racing circuit in the world. Plaintiff, in one case, Charles Joseph Dams, in, a, in 1899, purchased from the defendant a piece of land at Weybridge and a right-of-way over a, uh, a private road running from Byfleet to Weybridge. The, uh, Charles Dams then built a house and stables on the land and laid out gardens and grounds. In 1902, the defendant, Hugh Fortescue Locke King, entered an agreement with Charles Dams and two others, each of whom were owners of property abutting the private road, which entitled them to construct on the road, palisading and, and gateway, and a notice board with the words private road on it, but required them to pull, uh, pull them uh, down and remove the palisading and gateway at their own expense on being requested in writing by the defendant. In 1906, they were, uh, removed, uh, they were removed by the request of the defendant. In 1907, Locke King constructed the motor racing track on land southwest of Charles Dam's property. Dam actions concerned the, the, the way the private road and open space of land adjoining and the track itself were being used. The plaintiffs in the other action, Thomas Mears and Miss Lucy Mears, purchased another piece of land on the estate and had similar complaints. Dam asked the court to take out an injunction restraining the defendant from using or permitting the private road to be used as an access to the racetrack. Secondly, an injunction against using or permitting the adjoining strip of land to be used as a garage or standing place for cars. And thirdly, an injunction in respect of the uh, Brooklyn's track. Again, uh, Mears, uh, the Mears requested similar injunctions. One of the complaints was the noise caused by uh, motor cars and motorbikes and the crowd visit crowds visiting the track. Also, the complaint uh, was the fumes from the cars. Uh, which interfered with enjoyment of the, uh, in the gardens and meant keeping the windows of the houses closed. Another complaint concerned the smells. Uh, the barrister of the plaintiff stated that the fumes and smells were so strong that certain raspberries which had been exposed to them acquired a distinct flavour. 
Also, dust was produced in great quantities, and the crowd assembled consisted to some extent of unde undesirable characters who, who, would be, who would not be permitted on a race course. Uh, these persons were hawkers of race bills, which were like a hybrid of a poster and a race program, and like refreshments such as oranges and possibly even ginger beer. Neighbouring fences were used as impromptu uh, urinals. The case was substantially resolved by, uh, was substantially resolved by an agreement between the parties, the defendant agreeing to put up a barrier at the end of the road and the plaintiffs at gate at the other end. The defendants would also enforce existing regulations and silences and tuning up of engines, which uh, would take place at a, uh, as far as possible at a new place provided. The next uh, subject is um, covers horse racing. Uh, the great jockey Steve Donoghue uh, was a uh, champion jockey on ten consecutive occasions from uh, 1914, and uh, won uh, 14 classics, including six derbies. And he was the only, ever, uh, the only jockey ever to win the Triple Crown twice, which meant the, uh, uh, winning the 2000 Guineas English Derby and St Ledger in one season. He did have a reputation of acquiring rides and horses that were usually uh, ridden by other jockeys. I think the expression is jockeying off. In uh, 1917, he had spent a season in South Africa, and as, a result, and as a result of his wife's adultery, while out there, his marriage was dissolved. Here at the National Archives, we hold his divorce file in the record series J77, full reference of which can be found on our online catalogue under his name. They had three children. Uh, Donahue himself started a long affair in South Africa with Lady Torrington, the actress Eleanor Sore. She divorced her husband in 1921. Uh, Donahue and Torrington trained uh, horses uh, together and at the same time lived in the, an expensive lifestyle. During the 1928 season, Donahue went, went on to uh, 108 rides losing streak. Uh, a fall in a race in 1925, which dislocated and fractured his shoulder, had impaired his riding ability. In the same year as his losing streak, his, his extravagant spending caught up with him. He was made a bankrupt at the uh, bankruptcy court in the High Court of Justice. With debts of, uh, of about £15,000 and assets of less than £600. This is partly due to his generosity to, to friends, but also unsuccessful betting, which was uh, you know, illegal for, uh, I still think, for jockey. At the National Archives, among the uh, sample case files for the Board of Trade official receivers, we have the file for, uh, for Donahue, uh, Donahue under reference BT226 forward slash 4526. The file goes into great detail about his uh, dealings with money lenders. It includes a, a transcript of his uh, public ex examination in the court. This takes the form of questions and answers. After the, uh, his retirement, he became a trainer and a breeder, but not with any great success. He uh, died of a heart attack in uh, 1945. Let's go back on my uh, uh, previous one. At the um, National Archives, uh, we have a number of um, Home Office files on the uh, regulation of boxing, dealing with a number of cases where local magistrates were deciding on the legality of boxing contests. If they were a prize fight, they were illegal. Prize fights were associated with gambling and unruly behaviour. The fight in which men have, the, have to fight until one is incapable of further fighting through exhaustion or blows was not a legal contest. Uh, public prize fighting was an affray and an indictable misdemeanour. The provision of trains for prize fights became an offence under the Regulation of Railways Act uh, 1868. 
One contest that features in a Home Office file uh, was taken was taken place in Birmingham in, in 1911 at the Empire Skating Rink. But a summons was issued by the Chief Constable of the uh, Chief Constable of Birmingham. The proposed fight was a featherweight contest of 23 minute round uh, 23 minute rounds for a purse of 2,600 pounds, a gold belt, and a, a featherweight championship of the world. The boxers would fight under the Queensbury rules, the accepted rules of boxing introduced in the mid-19th century. Although the barrister for the defence, the well-known uh, Marshall Hall, interjected that the contest would take place under the 1911 rules of the National Sporting Club, which meant uh, the boxers would use six-ounce gloves instead of the four-ounce gloves. The prosecuting barrister continued that the seating capacity would be nearly 3,000 and admission charges would range from five shillings to five guineas. He contended that the public paid such prices to see a stand-up fight, which would cause excitement. He also said a heavy blow by a boxer wearing a four-ounce uh, gloves would cause as much damage as a blow with bare knuckles. The first witness for the prosecution was a police constable, later the, late the army, said that uh, a fight over tw uh, 20 rounds, the boxers would be exhausted, lips cut, blood flowing from the nose and mouth and bruises on the ribs, neck and body. Uh, by the way, that police constable was a, uh, an ex-boxing champion. The first witness to the offence, the president of the Amateur Boxing Association, said as the science of boxing increased, brute force had declined. Uh, Lord Lonsdale, uh, who donated the original Lonsdale belts uh, for boxing, was the next witness. He asked uh, what constituted a knockout blow. In reply, he said that such a blow was unknown to him, except that he had it three or four times and had given it several times. Marshall Hall, the defence barrister, in reply to the magistrate's clerk, started that stated that the prosecution were going to contend that all boxing was prize fighting and the words were interchangeable, a great injustice will be done. This would stop every form of leg legitimate boxing. The Reverend Ed uh, Everard uh, Digby said he knew both boxers and they were boxers of the highest skill and the match was likely to be the best for many years. The medical advisors of the Amateur Boxers Association said that the human frame was capable of being educated to progressive amounts of physical shock. With regard to the knockout, it was more likely to, to be a blow to the chin than anywhere else, and this was not painful. The magistrate then gave his decision. In his opinion, the fight was a prize fight. He felt that he could not take it upon himself to decide whether the proposed precautions would be sufficient. He decided to bind the bo two boxers over to the, over to the piece in the sum of £50 each. After the hearing, the Home Secretary Winston Churchill directed as the question raised in this case is one affecting law and order in, uh, law and order in Birmingham. He thought that the matter should be dealt with by the local police authority with the assistance of their legal advisor. However, as regards legal proceedings, he advised that the contest should, cannot actually be forbidden in advance by magistrates, <coughs> but the promoters, uh, com combatants, the seconds and the, the referee uh, can be brought before a magistrate, magistrate who, under penalty of forfeiture, uh, can place them under personal recognizances, which are like bonds, uh, with substantial sureties not to break the peace. If they broke the peace during the contest, the forfeiture of money by the defendants and the sureties uh, may be followed by prosecution, either for assault or if one of the boxers was killed for manslaughter. At the same time, uh, another proposed uh, uh, fight was to, to take place the same um, and face the same difficulties, uh, but with the added ingredient of racism, Jack Johnson uh, 
uh, the American boxer nicknamed the, the Galveston Giant, uh, became the first African-American world heavyweight uh, boxing champion in 1908. Bob Badir, uh, Billy Wells, uh, was a, an Englishman uh, and British heavyweight boxing champion, also famous for being the first man to fulfill the role of hitting the gong at the J. Arthur Rank Films in the beginning. They, all, they were due to uh, fight at Earl's, uh, Earl's Court Exhibition Centre on the 2nd of October 1911. The proposed fight generated enormous press interest. The Solicitor General, John Simon, gave a legal opinion for the Home Secretary on this fight. He stated that the English law about prize fights is fairly clear. It is immaterial whether contestants wear gloves or not, and whether the contest is called a prize fight or not. Neither does it make any difference that they have contra contracted to meet to fight for a stake and are not fighting for, uh, from anger or mutual ill will. If the object and intent of the combatants is to subdue each other by violent blows uh, until one can uh, endure it no longer, the contest is illegal. Both, uh, both co combatants and those who take part in carrying, out, uh, carrying through their arrangements are guilty of, a, of an assault. On the ha other hand, a sparring match in, in which the object is not to win by, re by reason of severity of the injuries uh, 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 is inflicted is a lawful exhibition. An exhibition is uh, matches won and lost on points is of, of, is of this character. Regarding the Johnson-Wells uh, fight, the Daily Tele Telegraph reported there is no doubt that there was a great number of people strongly against the proposed uh, contest be between a, a Negro and a white soldier. It also referred to the racial troubles at the Reno-Nevada-Johnson-Jeffries fight. In the end, the promoter of the fight, James White, decided to call the fight off. He gave assurances to the Bow Street Magistrates Court. He stated it was due to the injunction uh, taken out by the freeholders of uh, Earl's Court. In one of the Home Office files, White is interviewed, and he states, I'm, I'm a chap that can take a blow, but I'm getting fed up with this. I don't want to go into, the, into court. Some of the prevailing sentiments were just demonstrated a few years later when Lonsdale, Lord Lonsdale again, wrote a letter to the Home Office of 1923 in which he stated his very strongly the opinion that no coloured man, no matter what their weight, size or qualifications may be, may be, should compete with white men. If a hard and fast rule was laid down, it would be better. He went on to state that he saw no objection to, to allowing coloured men to fight other coloured men for prizes and competitions. He specifically referred to the black French uh, uh, boxer, had the name uh, Batling Siki, born in Senegal, and like middleweight, saying, I do not think from what I have been told that Siki is a very desirable character. But of course, your information of his private life would be of greater value than anything I can get. That, is a, that part of the business I do not get into. <laughs> Moving uh, more to modern times. <laughs> the next example of sport and law interacting involves the ex-Labour cabinet minister uh, and present shadow Secretary of State for Wales, Peter Hayne, and the issues of whether sport can remain separate from politics. He came from South Africa as a teenager and became involved in the anti-apartheid anti movement. His parents were anti-apartheid activists in South Africa and were briefly jailed and prevented from working. Uh, Peter became uh, chairman of the Stop the Tour campaign, disrupting the South Afri African Rugby Union and cricket tours in 1969 and 1970, respectively. <laughs> Peter Hayne was indicted uh, at the Central Criminal Court in, uh, at the May session 1971. He was charged under private prosecution by Francis Benison, a barrister, uh, Wallingham, Surrey, on behalf of the freedom under law. The National Archives holds the Central 
uh, criminal uh, court case file under reference uh, CRIM, C-R-I-M, 1 forward slash 5670. The first statement offence of offence on the indictment is, is, is worded conspiracy to hinder and disrupt the tour of the British Isles from the 30th of October 69 to 2nd of February 1970 by the official South African rugby team by, by unlawful means. The particulars of offence include invading the pi uh, pitches during play, sitting down or otherwise remaining on the said pitches and, and, and chaining persons to goalposts, continuing insulting and annoying the members of the said team and abusive insulting shouts and slogans, invading hotels where they were, planting smoke bombs therein, inserting solidifying agents into the locks of their, their bedroom doors. The indictment also included a statement of offence of conspiracy to hinder and disrupt the Davis Cup tennis match between Britain and South Africa at Bristol in, in July 69, and also the 1969 cricket tour of England by the Wilf Isaacs cricket team, and finally conspiracy to uh, prevent and cause to be cancelled the 1970 tour, 1970s tour of the British Isles by the South African uh, cricket team by unlawful means. Thirteen cricket grounds are listed on the particular offence of willfully and maliciously committing or causing others to commit damage. The trial took place in August 1972. From day 10 of the trial, Hayne conducted his own defence. Uh, uh, Judge uh, Gillis rebuked the 22-year-old uh, Hayne. This court cannot be turned into a public discussion or meeting where persons can come along and discuss their views and topics more appropriately discussed elsewhere. He was sure Mr Hayne was inadvertently misusing the court because of his lack of legal knowledge and, and deprived himself of his experienced counsel. On the 21st day of the trial, sentence was given. Haynes was fined £200 and after a 10 to 2 jury verdict purely on the uh, conspiracy charge relating to the Davis Cup. After more than uh, so, uh, seven hours the jury could not reach a decision on the three other conspiracy counts. And the dis uh, judge discharged them from giving a verdict and, and, and the judge directed the guilty, not guilty verdicts be recorded on, the th on, the, on those three counts. The judge told Hayne in passing, sen uh, passing sentence, you are a young man of undoubted ability and unquestioned reputation and sincerity. What you need is a measure of judgment which years may bring. Uh, then uh, Mr Hayne might make a greater contribution to the causes which he is devoted. The court is able to take a more lenient course than would otherwise be my, my, be my duty. I, re I recognise your youth, youth and lack of judgment. Hayne later unsuccessfully appealed. Yeah, my final case uh, is an interesting employment uh, appeal tribunal case from 1976 that features golf and probably more interestingly uh, women and professional sport. This is a case where uh, Vivian Saunders um, had an action against uh, Richmond-upon-Thames uh, London Borough Council. We hold the uh, National Archives um, employment appeal tribunal file under reference J1494-66. Vivian uh, Saunders became the first European to qualify for the LPGA, the American Women's Professional Golf Tour. Later she decided to become a golf professional, but as a woman she faced discrimination. When the Sex Discrimination Act came into force, she decided to take action under the Act in a case that became one of the leading cases in this field. She applied to be a golf professional at the Fulwell Park Twickenham a Municipal Nine Hole Golf Course, but she failed to get the uh, job. Uh, Richard, uh, um, counsellors had asked her such questions as, do you think men respond well to a woman's golf professional as a man? If all this is true, 
you will also see a lady you know, saying, uh, saying, don't you think this type of job is un unglamorous you know, uh, for a woman? You say, yes, if, if this is all true, you're obviously a lady of experience, but don't you think this, this type of job is unglamorous? Don't you think this is a job uh, with, it has rather long hours? If some of the men were causing trouble over the starting times and the tea, do you think you would be able to control this? <laughs> uh, Vivian claimed that all these questions were discriminatory, if not put to the male candidates, the duty of the subcommittee being to completely to ignore entirely the fact that she was a woman. She also appealed against the original tribunal decision that went against her on the grounds that she was discriminating on uh, not being called for a second interview. And the, and the, uh, the tribunal did not take into account evidence that the three shortlisted male can candidates were less well qualified uh, as her. At the appeal, the solicitor of the council claimed that Saunders did not get a second interview because of an administrative error. The judge accepted this. Uh, um, there was a postscript uh, to, uh, um, uh, to, to this case. I mean, uh, Vivian you know, decided to retrain, retain uh, Ryland Cleave to become a solicitor. Well, practically as a solicitor, she obtained a postgraduate diploma in management studies and a PhD in sports psychology. Subsequently, she left the law and returned to golf, taking over the golf course in Cambridgeshire. She now offers teaching and hotel accommodation. So, uh, <laughs> I don't think she was too heartbroken not to get the job. My final uh, case is, uh, again, a, a pretty well-known case in, in uh, sports law, uh, an example of sport and law interacting. It's the 1977 uh, Chancery Division uh, case, sorry, between the World Series of Cricket and the M MCC, uh, entitled uh, uh, Greg versus Insaw in the World Series of Cricket. This involved the legal issue of restraint of trade, very much a battle between the conservative-minded cricket establishment against the dynamic Australian tycoon, uh, Kerry Packer, who owned a television station in Australia. He wanted to have the television rights to show the Australian home test matches on his station, Channel 9. After the Australian Cricket Board refused to accept his bid to gain exclusive rights for the 1976 test series, he set, set up his own series of cricket matches by signing up as many of the top cricketers in the world notably England captain Tony Gregg, uh, Australian captain Greg Chappell, West Indian ca captain Clive Lloyd, who were attracted by the large you know, financial rewards. The De International Cricket uh, Council uh, hit back by stating that the Packer matches would not receive first-class status and players involved would be banned from test match from first-class cricket. Some uh, Packer-signed players decided to withdraw. Packer decided to take legal action to prevent third parties from, from inducing players to break their contracts. The trial of the, the Chancery Division of the, the High Court in London took seven weeks. Uh, the cricket authorities said less people would be attracted to watch without the big, uh, the big name players. The legal team for Packer maintained that the International Cricket Council had tried to force players to break their contracts and prevent others from joining them. The judge in his judgment said that professional cricketers needed to make a living. Players could not be criticised for entering the contracts in secrecy. The judgment enabled the World Series cricket to eventually flourish and in 1979 Packer did it gain exclusive rights, uh, his original goal from the now impoverished Australian cricket ball. The judgment also enabled players to play for the counties in, in England. The game of cricket with greater money and coloured clothing for limited overs cricket was changed forever. Sadly, the court, uh, the court papers in this case do not survive, uh, although I would have thought the historical and legal significance of this case would have made it a good candidate for the small percentage of modern uh, high court papers that are retained and transferred to national archives. 
Uh, this uh, concludes my uh, talk. This event was recorded live on the 29th of March 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs> <laughs>